Hey everybody, I'm Tim Whitaker, along with Rob McMichael and Jordan Renault. This is our podcast, Coffee, Theology, and Jesus. Our purpose for this podcast is to discuss this messy, difficult, and amazing thing we call the Christian faith. As Christians, we are encouraged and challenged constantly to see what the Bible teaches us about who Jesus was and how he lived and how we can better represent his message every day. Join us each episode as we explore how this relationship with Jesus affects everything from politics and religion to relationships and theology. Now that you know a little more about us, let's get into this week's episode. This is episode number 61, where we had a bit of a new experience. This episode was recorded near the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic while we were all still adjusting to the new normal. How did we decide to fill up some of our time? by trying something new and going live on Facebook. The topic started as a response to one of Tim's Facebook posts about minimum wage laws and regulations, but it ended in discussions about the local church and caring for those in our congregations. We had a lot of interaction from our listeners and hope you will enjoy the discussion this week. Welcome, everyone. To our first train wreck of an episode <laughs> online, Facebook Live. Uh, welcome to the Coffee Theology and Jesus podcast. If you can see us, th- thank you for joining. And we are on a slight delay from what you're seeing versus when we're actually saying this. So I have honestly no clue what I'm looking at because I'm watching the live stream. So I'm seeing myself delayed Don't do that. while I'm trying to talk to Rob. It's, it's really bizarre. But wait, I can't see comments. Okay, I, I think I figured it out. There are none, Tim. That's why. <laughs> First well, of all. it is good to see you guys, Rob and Jordan. It's been a long time. Uh, nothing like a good pandemic to bring us back together, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> That's what it took. That's what it took. Um, Our lives are so busy, we had to be in quarantine to be able to have this podcast. <laughs> Oh my goodness. It is crazy. <laughs> what is going on though? Um, I am definitely self-quarantined. Um, Jordan, I know you are and Rob, you're still working from home, but you're quarantined too, right? Uh, yes, I am. Wow. Yeah. This is a weird time in life. There's, it's just weird. This whole thing is, it's crazy. It's weird. It's weird. True. Well, I don't know what else to say. It's a weird thing. I mean, <laughs> if you told me a month ago that all of my events would have been canceled, all my music stuff would be canceled, all my church stuff would be canceled, and I would be home almost all day, I would not have believed you. And here we are. So, yeah. yeah. We were just saying earlier that's like, pray for the extroverts <laughs> like Tim. That's me. They're, it's hitting them the hardest, <laughs> clearly. Wow. I'm going a little crazy. I'm trying to keep busy with work. You know, we're trying to figure out what we're going to do to keep things going. So it's just crazy. No, but let's be honest. What you're actually doing is sitting there trying to come up with the most controversial Facebook feeds. Well, <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think I hit one. <laughs> it's like uh, battleship. You may have. <laughs> I'm like, well, let's see if this works. Miss. Let's, let's try it again. Oh, and then this time I hit, I, I don't know if I hit a five, a five boat or a two boat, but I hit something, <laughs> but we're going to, we're going to hop on that boat and ride it till it sinks. Tim. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, this is your first time listening to our podcast. Thanks for, for chiming in and hanging out with us, but I, I guess we might as well hop right into it 
because I did post something about a minimum wage and how I'm a fan of that increasing. Rob, I know that you're against that idea overall, right? Are you against Are you against the no. state mandating it? That's what I'm saying. I, I'm against the government mandating the increase, yes. Okay. Jordan, where do you land on this? I think similar to Rob. I think it's really hard to, to do on a federal level. And I think because the cost of living is so different from state to state, I think it has to be done more on that level for it to be effective. But yeah, I don't know where I stand as far as what the minimum wage is supposed to be though, I think is more the question. Is it supposed to be a livable wage or is it supposed to be um, an entry level that you move on from kind of wage that it's designed to be that? I know you have thoughts on this, Tim. Well, yeah, I kind of always have thoughts. That's kind of the problem yes, most of the time. <laughs> they're, they're normally wrong, but he does have thoughts. Uh, <laughs> um, well, hold on. First, let's let's establish one thing. Jordan, I get that you're saying you don't know what it should be or what the line should be, but what I'm asking right. is, on a base level, should the government have something to say in a, a foundational baseline for how much an employee should get paid? That that's the key question before we even get into the how. I think they can, but I, I think if the federal government's going to mandate it, it it's going to be lower than a than what you were calling like a, a livable wage. You well, know what I mean? Like if me, you're going to say this is the lowest you can go, no one in the country can pay less than this. This is this is the floor. You know, I think it has that's going to be lower, and I don't think it's going to be much off from what it is now, honestly. But what if what about the federal government saying, listen, we know that on the federal level, we can't micromanage every geographic location that has different costs of living, but we're mandating right. that states look at their costs of living and that, that, and that those companies pay their employees whatever that baseline would be per state. I think that's a reasonable thing yeah, to I th require. I think, they, I think they could say, yeah, if you were to say it has to be this in comparison to your average cost of living kind of thing. Yeah, just, I, yes. I mean, I could see something like that, I guess, but I'm under the impression that when the minimum wage was first introduced, you know, uh, I think after the Great Depression was when it came into play, it was established to give people a, a, a baseline for what was a livable wage at that time. And by livable, I don't mean I should probably clarify that. I don't mean um, even like a, an upper middle class or even a middle class standard. I'm talking about a baseline. You can pay for shelter. You can pay for groceries. You can pay for necessary transportation to your job. I mean, I'm talking about pretty much the necessities of what it costs to live in a country. So I'm not advocating for, you know, the federal government saying, listen, you got to pay your employees like 25 bucks an hour and minimum. I'm not saying that, but there has to be a place, I believe, in this country where people who get a job that is a legal job by a company that is legal and doing things legally, mm -hmm. that they should be guaranteed a basic amount of income that they can at least survive. I mean, at a minimum by themselves on let alone, I'm not going to get into the family discussion. That's, I think that's a different argument, but <laughs> so someone can live on their own and function is what I'm advocating for. And I don't think that's unrealistic to ask for, for, for em employment places to do that. Yeah. I don't know though. Like, when you think about the things that you need to actually live, though, I think it's a lot less than what we want to be comfortable. 
I think you're talking about living on your own. I don't think that's a requirement. Like you don't have to have your own place. You could definitely share a place with roommates or rent a room. That's totally viable in most every location. Um, yeah, I think the things that we would add to that list, and I know because we've sat around a campfire and and made up this list, Tim. <laughs> I, I remember this. I remember <laughs> All that. the things. That was a while ago. Um, but I think it ends up being less things that you could say, we absolutely need this for to live and sur survive. Well, you obviously can't, you can't get nuanced with every single individual person, right? You have right. to at some point, to some degree, you have to generalize something. And I think being able to, to afford, let's just take New Jersey, for example, the cheapest rent I've ever found in New Jersey three years ago was $700 a month for a one bedroom hole in the wall in Pemberton. All right. That was the cheapest I ever found a place for rent. Let's assume that somehow you fall into the cracks of society. You can't live at home. You have no one who will live with you. I think you should be able to afford that rent off a of basic income. I think that's, that's not too much to ask for. I also think that assuming you eat ramen your whole life, maybe a hundred <laughs> bucks a month for groceries, which is super, super bare. So I'm just saying, like, I think that there should be something that the government says, we assume this is the cost of living in America. And we assume that based on geographical location, this much should be the wage. And honestly, all I'm saying is I'm asking the minimum wage to do what it was designed to do. I'm not asking for anything crazy. I mean, the minimum wage that was put into place after the Great Depression was designed to do what I'm, what I'm advocating for. This is not a crazy new idea that's out of thin air. It just hasn't been updated for the cost of inflation, I think, in over 20 years. It hasn't been raised federally in over 10. All right, so I guess a question before we get too far into it is you're going to marginalize someone no matter what you pick. So say you do that calculation, you get out there and you're like, you know what? The minimum wage should be $18 an hour in New Jersey to be able to afford this, uh, live on your own. Now what happens to all the teenagers who want that summer job, um, but they're not living at home, they're not experienced, isn't that going to marginalize them and say, hey, too bad, um, when it comes down to it, no employer is going to hire them at $18 an hour when they say, but I also could get the same person who has graduated high school, can work better hours, can do better shifts, and is a little more knowledgeable, more experienced, and I can pay them $18 an hour. So now, because your baseline was someone who is a college or a high school graduate living on their own, affording groceries, not living at home, and not paying their own car insurance, and not doing all of these other things, now you've eliminated them from the workforce. And I think to that point, Seattle actually has one of the lowest teenager workforces in America after they implemented the $15 an hour minimum wage. Mm, yeah, uh, it well, God. sorry. It definitely gets tricky when you have small areas like that that raise the minimum wage like they did in Seattle where it's just within city limits. Because um, I was living out there when they did that. And I had a friend who lived... Uh, outside the city, but worked inside the city at a Starbucks and they were making more than I was working, you know, a half hour north, even though I'd been with the company for seven years and they were there for a day. Um, but what happens is that when people, they had to raise the prices, 
Um, and that's what you're going to see. If you're making people pay more uh, to their employees, they're going to have to raise prices. So even Starbucks, which is a huge corporation, raised the prices on its stuff inside the city enough so that they noticed an uh, actual difference in the amount of customers they had at those specific stores within the city. So people commuting into the city would stop before they got into the city or after they left. Um, and those stores within the city were really only getting like uh, tourist kind of traffic. So basically they had to cut hours a lot. Um, so she was making more per hour, but they had to cut hours. So I'm just saying like, that's a specific situation where it's just within the city and it kind of ends up with like a tricky thing. I don't think that would have been the case if they had done it in the whole state, but. Let me also add one thing too about this. I think um, obviously things like this are nuanced or not going to be black and white. I, this is a good example. In my opinion, a company like Starbucks, or we can say Apple, who I worked for, they, Starbucks didn't have to raise prices. They just decided to, to keep whatever their margin that they want. I mean, I just Googled it for fun. Starbucks in 2019, the revenue was $26.51 billion. So what I'm saying is, I don't think they're like a small business is like, guys, if you do that, we're just going to go bankrupt. No, there's their shareholders who they're accountable to might not like that their, their profit margin takes a small dip, but they can right. definitely afford to pay their employees, whatever that would be. Um, Without you know, raising their prices, you're saying? They de- yeah, they definitely could. They just choose but not to. But they're not to. going to. Right. But, well, but that's what I'm saying. S- it's it's still a free market. They're but still that's going my to point, do that. Though. <laughs> that's my point, though, is that if the free market, see, people always advocate, well, not always, but I hear a lot of arguments of, well, you know, the free market, like there should be no minimum wage because the free market will, will, will weigh that out. But it won't because if they won't do the right thing now, and they're going to fight being forced to do the right thing, then what makes me think or you think that if there was no regulation on the bare minimum wage, that somehow Starbucks would say, you know what, now that there's no minimum, $13 an hour for everyone. There wouldn't, I don't understand what what the argument is of if there was no regulation, there'd be more wage increase. A good example of that is Amazon paying all of its employees $15 an hour, despite that not being the Ah, federal ah, minimum wage. ah, That is true, but they reduced their benefits. So it was just a moving around of the money. They took away stock options from that. So well, that's another great but example. For a lot of people in the entry positions, like my wife who works for Whole Foods mm-hmm. and doesn't doesn't take advantage of those benefits anyway because she's part-time, mm-hmm. it was an actual pay increase. So for a lot of people, especially in those entry-level positions that you're talking about, that was an actual pay increase. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, it's a company... That for a lot of their employees, they actually are paying them a lot more now. Right. After I after and, a, t- a ton of public outcry and after they got exposed and after they're under all the scrutiny for their CEO not paying uh, their corporate tax, paying a tax effective rate of zero dollars. I'm just trying to make the point that like I, I think that some people have like in their in their head that the free market will always do the right thing for its employees. It doesn't owe it. Especially in, no. especially in big corporate America, <laughs> there's obviously a difference between small business, I think, and like this, like the top, what, 3% of corporations in America that are just ginormous. There's, I think there's yeah. a big difference in how they function as a business, right? But a lot of those companies don't do, I would argue, the ethical thing of paying their employees a fair wage until there's big public outcry that will start affecting their sales. But by that, but, but by that point, it's such, it's such a slow process. It takes years for that to make a change. Amazon's change was recent. I think the past year or so, it was yeah. like it was, you know, oh, 10 years ago, we stepped up and 
decided to pay our employees a fair wage. They're pretty much keeping up with the cost of inflation, which I appreciate. And even Apple started me five years ago at, at 1480 for a part-time retail position. But this is also a company, in particular Apple, that is, is posting not just record revenue, but record profits every quarter and has and at one point had more cash on hand than the US government. So forgive me if I'm not like thrilled that I'm selling a million dollars for Apple in one year and I'm making $15 an hour doing it. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's a no, different I, discussion, I'm, but. And I'm but companies are always gonna do the right thing. But I'm just saying that there are examples of them actually stepping up and doing something um, where it's not just the bare minimum that they could absolutely do. Like I don't get paid, you know, entry level position at Starbucks is not minimum wage. You know, it's two or three dollars above minimum wage. I'm just saying there's there's instances and a lot of companies are actually paying their employees entry level day one that is not minimum wage. Okay, fair point. So here's my question then. What's the problem with the government making that the national standard? What's the problem with government saying, thank you, Starbucks, you pay $9 an hour starting? Good. That's like the federal minimum wage. I don't understand like how the government mandating a certain minimum wage, whether it's geographical or it's um, however they do it, I, don't, I still don't understand how that's a problem. Like, what's the issue with Because, like, like I said, you're going to marginalize someone and there's going to be a lot of small businesses that aren't going to be able to afford Costco, Amazon, Starbucks. Yeah. They have the, the capabilities to enforce a large training program. They have the capabilities to bring down their costs enough where they can pay part-time employees or entry-level employees more than another company will. There are, it's, it's going to happen that you're going to force someone out of a job because you raise the minimum wage beyond what their value is to an employer. And who is to, who is it? Why is it our job to say, Oh, you know what? This is your value. And this is what the employer, your employer should pay uh, you. If, if I agreed to work for $5 an hour, what business is that of yours? Uh, it's not like these companies are exploiting people and forcing them to do labor. And um, you can't, like New Jersey, I know, is an at-will state. North Carolina is an at-will state where at any time you can go to your boss and say, I'm done working here. Have a nice life. So there's there's a mutual agreement there where they're going to continue paying you what you agreed upon. And if you don't like that, quit. Go get a different job. Especially I mean, at a minimum wage job, you there's more job openings, and maybe not right now, but there's more job openings than there were people in the unemployment line. I find your scenario just not like you said. You're going to marginalize someone. That scenario, like my someone commented on that status. I'm not sure if you saw Anthony about how in West Virginia it's pretty much Walmart's the largest employer there. You, for a lot of people, you can't just quit and get another job. That's just not how it works in that whatever society that they're in, in that pocket of the US. I'm pretty spoiled because I live in New Jersey where there's a business on probably every corner ever in New Jersey because there's so many, so much happening. But in other places that are really remote or really rural, it's not as simple as, hey, I don't like my job, Walmart. I'm going to go down to this place and get a better paying job. That's just not how it, it functions. Um, but you, I, 
you I, do have the capability to start your own job, though. You have the capability in to West start Virginia? your own company. In West Virginia? Yeah, absolutely. I think have you ever heard of online commerce? I, I, just, I just, I wonder what you're expecting out of people. Like, okay, let's just take someone who has a GED, didn't really grow up in a great affluent community, lives in the middle of nowhere, West Virginia. Has a wait job a minute, at wait a minute. Let's, let's step, take a step back, though. Why do they have a GED? What? School is free, Tim. Why do they have a GED? I'm, I'm sorry, you cut out. What'd you say? I said, why do they have a GED to begin with? Why have they not graduated from high school? We can say high school. It's just a part of my, just an example. Is I'm there, just saying, like, what's the point of your argument? I don't understand. My point is that if they're at that point where they've not finished high school or something, then they're already making a choice not to pursue something that's going to better them in the future. Well, I don't, I mean, that's a lot to assume. You assume that someone just said, I'm out of high school, even though I can stay. What if they had a family issue? What if they're, what if their parents fell on hard times? They had to go in the workforce early to make ends meet. I'm talking about things that like we never experienced, but that happened for a lot of people. So I'm just giving you guys hypotheticals, you know, of like things that I've either heard stories of or have seen people or whatever, you know, seen a post somewhere of this has happened to someone. And I'm just wondering like, where's that safety net for someone like that? And again, I'm not advocating for someone being rich. I'm just saying, is there a standard of living that we can guarantee someone to make um, even in a basic minimum wage job? Yeah, it's just hard to make sweeping federal policy based on like outlier situations. And I don't know how outlier they are. Maybe that's more common than I think. Right. But it is tough to kind of guess. Yeah. I mean, I feel like those are the kind of situations where you have to rely I don't know, you have to rely, but I don't know. I was kind of thinking about this earlier, like w- as a Christian, like what is our response to people who are in those kinds of situations where they're really struggling, can't find a job or they have the family situation that's not allowing them to, you know, move up and move forward in things like that. Like if we're, you know, claiming to be, you know, the hands and feet of Jesus out in the world, then are we engaging with those kinds of situations too? And I feel like that's maybe where there's more of a solution for those like outlier things is not like the government coming in and saying, you know, everyone should be raised to this standard no matter what they do. Um, but like, let's, because I, I don't think that's on the government. The, the net federal government can't look at the lowest denominator and say, this is the person that we're going to make sure is okay in all of this. You know, they kind of have to like look at the middle and say, you know, this is what we can do for everybody. Um, and then it falls to other things to take care of the extremely bad situations or, you know, whatever else. So um, that's a good point, Jordan. Well, let me say one thing in response and we should go to some questions that we're getting, which would be great. Um, sure. And I'm being really honest. This is not this is just me thinking through this out loud. I don't know if if. My situation is an outlier situation, meaning I don't go paycheck to paycheck. Or if what I just described of like paycheck to paycheck people who are whatever, for whatever reason, in a tight spot, if that's the outlier situation. Like, I, you know, you, and it's tough because in a social media yeah. news, uh, internet news based world, you, I feel like you can find a statistic to back up anything that you want to believe. So I can probably find stats that will re, that re, like reinforce my bias. Like, uh-huh. look. 40% of Americans are paycheck to paycheck. There's, this is the minimum wage I'm talking about. Then you can Google it and be like, look, wages are higher than ever. And most people make more than minimum wage, you know, and it's tough. So I, I, I think you're right though. Like 
I am coming at it very much from a like ethical as a Christ follower. How do I respond to this? Like, what do I do with this? If there's already a minimum wage in place and it's just behind on cost of inflation and businesses have, have all adapted, you know, 20 year, 10 years ago when minimum wage was raised to $7 an hour, you know, here we are, business is still thriving. It hasn't killed business. I just wonder, like, if you raise it again to even like $10 an hour minimum, which is still really basic, right? Is that going to like somehow wipe out businesses? Also, yeah. one last thing I'll say, then we'll get to some questions. I do know like in New Jersey, there are certain policies that are in place, but that they, they only affect in businesses that have a certain amount of employees. If it's like 15 or more employees, 20 or more employees, et cetera. Um, but that's just another thought I had. So, um, cool. Let's go to some questions. Let's see. I like Russell's question. What, what, what if they were homeschooled? Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Thanks Russ. He's a real friend. <laughs> Um, Russell asks, okay, here, here we go. Why not $50 an hour? Personally, I think I've already explained that, that I'm not advocating for people to be rich. I'm just asking for, a, 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 I guess, a, a rock bottom foundation that somebody can get paid no matter what job they're working. Maybe it's a little altruistic, but that's what I'm advocating for. Um, let's see. Oh, all right. Here's one. Curious about individuals like waiters that don't really start or ever get to minimum wage and depend rely on tips. That's a great question. I thought about that. I don't know. I don't know. What do you guys think? Are you talking about like um, where the, the businesses that get the exceptions to pay less than minimum wage because of. Yeah. Because like of I think the food industry pays like a dollar 50 an hour, $2 an hour. But yeah. uh, if, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, don't they have to so you're guaranteed minimum wage i think that is true yeah so like if you your only tips get don't paid hit minimum two, wage correct yeah they still have to hit the minimum wage if your tips don't hit it right is uh -huh. how i understand it okay that makes a lot more sense um, and just but, for clarifying I'm sure that is purposes <laughs> yeah yeah well right yeah, now it is sure. especially with coronavirus going i mean they're all shut down I know a yeah. ton yeah, yeah. of people who are like, I, my work is totally, it's gone. It's gone. Um, yeah. My brother works in a restaurant. So that's, that's super tough. Um, one more question. Then we'll continue. Russ also asked, what else do they put a minimum on? The amount of kids you can have. <laughs> Rob. Minimum. <laughs> hmm. That's a good question, Russ. I got to think about that. I don't know. I'm not sure. What's the minimum on? Nothing. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, I'll put, I'll give you. I guess here's a lame, maybe a weak example, but if you buy a car, you have to have a minimum amount of insurance on it by law. You can't have an uninsured vehicle. Um, That's I don't to think protect other people. Think, well, yeah, I'm saying I don't think that applies to our situation, but you know, it's just an example. Um, but Jordan, I kind of do want to get back to like your. I think what I'm wrestling with the most is as the Christ follower how do you what do you advocate for policy wise right like in a country yeah. it's well we've had this conversation before and i don't remember if it came up on the podcast really or if it was on our lost podcast episode maybe um but that whole question of as a christ follower where does like what standard are you holding government to are you going to hold them to the same, same standards you'd hold yourself to as a Christ follower? 
or are they, you know, a secular uh, body that gets to, you know, that is exists by different standards. Like, I don't, I'm not going to hold our secular government to biblical standards. I don't think you can. But then for myself, when I'm interacting with government policy as much as I can as a citizen, am I going to vote for things or for people that represent my biblical worldview? I think that's the big question. I got to be honest. <laughs> I really, I can see how I'm a hypocrite of my, of that, of my own belief system by saying like, Yes, some things, yes, some things, no. And I can understand how someone could be like, that's hypocritical because it should be this thing, not that thing. You know, like right. I would probably argue for me that the minimum wage is like, as a Christian, I think, you know, humans have dignity and are worth living in the richest country in America. But I can also understand how someone's like, as a Christian, this other ethical thing I think should be outlawed or it should be allowed because I'm a Christian, even though I would be like, well, that's not your call. Does that make sense? Right. You know, it's so honestly, I don't know what to do with this because we live in such a weird time. Um, I am reading this interesting book that has kind of helped me kind of think through some of this stuff. It's called One Nation Under God. It's written by a historian um, who seems pretty as unbiased, I guess, as you, as you can get. And it's about how um, in the 1920s and on how a lot of um, like what we experience now today with like this like Christian you know, this is a Christian country, like, you know, um, fight socialism kind of thing as a Christian has kind of come out of this era in uh, American politics where the New Deal went through and threatened a lot of big businesses. And they got together and kind of partnered with some pastors to kind of create this, um, the Bible supports capitalism more than socialism. Therefore, if you're a good Christian, you'll be a capitalist. Mm -hmm. And they kind of started a lot of what we see now. And it's just interesting to, to know like where some of this stuff has come from, you know, and it's definitely helped me be able to kind of separate like, okay, this wasn't, this kind of stuff wasn't always seen this way from other Christians before this movement in the 1920s happened. You know, like there was for a lot of years, a, a big push from a lot of Christian radicals towards more like, um, I'm not going to say socialist or Marxist ideas, but definitely more, um, this, the state should support the least of these kind of mentalities, you know? Yeah. So there is definitely, I think, room for a lot of debate here. And I think it's important that we realize that, that it's not that one side really has the corner on what is the right way to approach these things, but they're very nuanced and they require a lot of discussing and a lot of wisdom. Yeah. I think then the, uh, playing out of how those socialist countries went after the 1920s, sort of confirmed things but uh <laughs> yeah well i mean for sure that that's part of the <laughs> book too it's like yeah. yeah i mean yeah in but, the 1920s it was all idealistic with no bad examples of how it could go <laughs> well and i, I don't want to get too far down this rabbit hole and i'm honestly for those of you watching i'm just talking out loud these aren't necessarily my actual beliefs we're <laughs> so all experts let's yeah let's not assume <laughs> that me saying something is me advocating for it but i i I think a good example, right, of like moments like right now with this pandemic, you have uh, President Trump who's like, listen, I'm working on a $2 trillion stimulus bill to give everyone $1,000. And I'm 1200 I'm pleased. Oh, 1200 12, I'm 1200 plus 500 for each kid. Yeah. 
even better. All right. I'm pleased to <laughs> hear that. Rob's going to make millions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Rob's like, my $10,000 check is on its he's way. Like, he's like, how many kids can I have before this bill passes? <laughs> yeah. Quick, Julia, pop out that kid. Pop him out. <laughs> but I do remember like two months ago, Andrew Yang advocated for not the same thing in the same context, but the right. same idea of like a UBI, universal basic income. And it's just written off as like, that's crazy socialism. How can we afford it? Now, listen, I understand that this is different, right? This is an unforeseen thing that is obviously like people have lost jobs. I, I'm not saying that what's happening now shouldn't happen. But I am saying is like, these are reasons why certain people have advocated for policies like that for times like this, you know, where like a safety net where if something does fall, there's this UBI or whatever it is. There's this healthcare yeah. system in place that protects people when calamity or a lost job or a pandemic happens. And I can understand well, that argument. Don't we already have that? What? It's called unemployment, welfare. We have all of those systems in place already. Yeah, we have some of them for sure. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm confused as to what you're what you're advocating for. Well, I'm not advocating more than making the point that Republicans would call Andrew Yang's idea socialism, but a two trillion dollar bill being passed through right now to pay people. Not one lick of I don't know. Is this kind of socialistic and giving people free money? What if people squander the money? What if people drink the money away? That's not a discussion we're having right now. So it just makes me wonder, like, how much of this is just partisan politics to kind of get the vote versus like what people actually believe? Because obviously Trump is having a problem, and I'm not. I'm 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 for it. I know Mitt Romney, same thing. Let's give people a thousand dollars to get through this time. That's great, but it's still two trillion dollars, right? So wouldn't the question be? How are we going to pay for it? But that's not a discussion right now. So it's just making it's just interesting to see how this is kind of playing out um, and just kind of seeing how people have changed their tune very quickly. Does that make sense, Rob? Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah, I, <laughs> I get what you're I get what you're trying to say, Tim. I think the, that comparison, though, between like the Andrew Yang thing and this is because this situation is so different and so unprecedented, I feel like it's really hard to compare it to anything else, um, right. to any other policy. I feel like getting on board with this or even being against this for whatever reason you might have, um, it's like, it's just such a totally different situation. It's hard to compare it and say, you know, you're, you've been flip-flopped, your rhetoric has flip-flopped from what you thought about this other thing back here to this now. Um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. You had some other thoughts I was interested to talk about, about um, just kind of how the virus has affected like our definition of essential workers and stuff like that. Okay. Tim, what were you, what were your thoughts on that? Uh, in regards, well, we're kind of, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but that's kind of straying from the purpose of this discussion. I mean, you had brought it up there. in relation just, to that, though. Honestly, in Rob, you are age. a killjoy. You're totally, <laughs> you've just, you've ruined this I conversation. Had joy. <laughs> no, I do not have joy. Now you've killed it. <laughs> I'm just saying that because there are a lot of questions coming through still that I think we oh, sure. no, address. Okay. Rob, bring them up. Go for it. Um, so Moo Kim said, let's see, go back.
Some workers are institutionally prevented from, quote unquote, climbing the ladder because the corporate policy is to cap workers' hours before they get to full time. A minimum wage could also be in the form of hours per week. So uh, I've definitely heard that before that, um, you know, some some employers will offer benefits to full-time employees, but because they don't want to pay that extra cost for that employee, they'll cap their hours at 38 hours a week. And then they're able to say, oh, they're part-time. We don't have to do that. Um, I know Tim hates this, but my response would be the free market is going to solve that. If, uh, for instance, in a city where there are a bunch of companies that are offering benefits to workers and two of them are offering hours and the third one is saying now we're going to cap hours where are all the workers going to go they're going to leave the one and go to the other two and i think that's assuming the they get hired right or there's only so many jobs but yes only so many move. jobs exactly <laughs> and, but i think we're also limited to, well, I don't want to leave here. I don't want to move. I don't want to do this. Where sometimes the best move is to move 600 miles for a better opportunity. I'm sorry. I think that I did. I think that I think that's crazy. I, I, I mean, there's no way I would pack up me, my wife, my pregnant wife, leave my family, my church culture, everything I do, because there's the only option I have is to find a better job 700 miles away. How is that realistic for almost any person well, with any kind of family route? I don't think that that extreme example is true. You may just have to go to the next town. <laughs> Maybe. It I think it all depends. I mean, this goes back to, I think Jordan's very, and your point too, Rob, honestly. I mean, ge I, geography and the states is so big. There are so many different cultures and subcultures and just pockets of cultures inside of those cultures that it is hard to have like a federal blanket um you know policy on this kind of thing because you're right like in new jersey i absolutely have options to new york city philadelphia i mean i have two major cities within an hour and a half drive on top of all the businesses in north jersey central jersey which is definitely a thing and south jersey <laughs> but I, I again just for the sake of argument you know west virginia or you know, Idaho, where maybe the nearest town is, you know, two hours away, the nearest city is two and a half hours away. I don't know what that person, what their options are. That's all I'm advocating. That's mm -hmm. all I'm trying to say. I just don't know. Maybe they're great. I just don't know. But anyway, next question, Rob. Well, Unless I you want to respond. I don't want to cut the, you off. The, the page failed. So. Oh, I still have it. Okay. Um, let's see. Let's go back to Russ. He's, he's full of great ideas. <laughs> <laughs> Any comments on the traditional family unit and how it affects household wages, i.e. the importance of having a father and mother in the home? I must say, I, I can answer this one first. You guys love to have your thoughts. Um, I'm a big believer in the, a healthy family unit. I think um, a lot of this stuff is tied to that for sure. When you have a single mom trying to raise three kids, that's a really bad that spot to be in. That's really difficult. I think it's hard to work three jobs and raise a family by yourself when, and you have to rely on either, either a church to help you or a state program to help you. And I think a lot of people are in that situation. 
Um, I'm a big believer that a healthy marriage creates healthy families. And that does create, I think, a healthy, a healthy, um, like financial culture and just moral culture over overall, for sure. Jordan, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, that's kind of the general idea I was getting at when I was talking about finishing high school. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking more generally of things that are within your control, I guess, and the choices we make as individuals and how that then affects our ability, our flexibility maybe later on to pursue jobs uh, that we either couldn't or just didn't have the ability to. Um, I remember seeing at some point, I was trying to find it, there was... I think it was, I forget if it was like, do these three things to, to stay out of poverty or something like that. But it was basically like, finish high school, wait until you're 21 to get married and have a kid or don't have a kid before you're married, something like that. Um, yeah. And it's all things that, and basically the idea is like, these are the things that you have control over as an individual, that if you choose to go this way on it, it's going to make it a lot harder for you later on, for sure like not finishing high school, having a child as a single per as a single mother um, is going to make it a lot harder. And, you know, in most, <laughs> most cases, that is a choice that you make to do that or not. Um, so yeah, and I definitely feel like, then beyond that, yeah, what you're saying, Tim, is that having that solid family makes a huge difference you know having a healthy marriage um having two parents in a home it makes your options just better options to choose from <laughs> as far as what you do for a job and um not to say it's not hard i mean my wife and i have been married for going on seven years and you know it's hard still you know working at a job like Starbucks for seven years and um, not making a whole lot more than minimum wage. And that's certainly a choice I've made for different reasons to be there um, and to pursue school and things like that. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is just that having the support of another person and having the, um, the options of another person either working more hours so that the other person can pursue school or things like that definitely uh, raises your chances of being able to sort of break out of that like entry level place that you might find yourself in. I don't want to go down uh, this rabbit hole too deep. And I agree with a lot of what you said, Jordan. I, again, I think we have to be aware that um, some people just are brought up in ways that they're just not taught those things that seem so basic to us. Like, Hey, you shouldn't sure. have a kid before you're married or whatever it is. And, um, I'm a, I don't know if we would agree on this, but I'm a big believer and I know education doesn't solve everything. I, I totally get that. Obviously at some point you have to choose to take the, the knowledge that you have and put it in practice. But I think that there are a lot of places, especially some inner cities and stuff that that kind of knowledge is so so unknown to those, to people in those situations because they model what they see. So they, a lot of them mm -hmm. grew up in a broken home and whether they want to or not, I don't think anyone who starts dating someone's like, I can't wait till we ruin our marriage. And you know, I can't wait till I have a kid and you abandon me. I don't think people necessarily intentionally choose that, but when you, you kind of model whatever you're taught, you know, and sure. I'm lucky to have great parents. And that is huge because I think about it now more than ever. 
if my parents were split or if my, my parents didn't get along or they were always yelling, I would just grow up thinking that's normal and I would unintentionally start emulating it. So anyway, that's a bigger topic maybe I, for a different day, but I'm with you on that for sure. It, and I think what you were just saying, Tim, I think gets into a little bit of what Christina commented a little bit ago. Um, should one not simply be advocating for Christ in your own circles, in your own community? And we were touching on it a little bit before, what is the church's role? I think that is part of the local church's role is to be that voice of Christ, that hand of Christ, and to care for, uh, and, you know, I'm going to tread carefully here because I do believe it is the call for those inside of the church and not that the church is supposed to be this uh, outreaching arm that is taking care of all of the poor in your community. But I think that is a ministry that has a lot of fruitful um, benefits in winning souls to Christ and being Christ who did reach out to the poor, did reach out to the brokenhearted, did reach out to the widows and the outcasts of society. So when it comes to the local church, I think we could be doing a lot more personally and as groups of people um, in those local communities to help those that are going through tough times, to help um, uh, encourage, especially in inner city communities, um, to, to give them fatherly figures, to give them motherly figures, to, to give them what they're lacking, not just monetarily, but um, I know um, my church in Pensauken used to do a homework center every week for kids. Um, where we'd, we'd bring them in. We know they weren't getting it at home. So we'd, hey, we got the internet, we can help you with your projects, kind of, and, and just give a positive force in that way. And I think that's something that we could definitely be doing to, as Jordan, you were saying, to engage people and to get them thinking beyond a minimum wage job to, wow, I could actually outgrow uh, even my own family dynamics. Yeah, I mean, Robbie, that's a man that's on the money. Um, I know personally, um, I think it's easy. I'm talking to myself here, really. You, you kind of, when, when you're younger and you kind of grow up, you kind of assume that how you grew up is normal for everyone. Right. And then you kind of realize, mm -hmm. realize that, Oh wait, it, for, for better or for worse, it wasn't, no, it's not normal necessarily. Right. Like not everyone had mm -hmm. the same experience I had. And me and Sarah encountered that when we first got married was like, wait, you grew up thinking what, like, how did your parents do this? Like, are you, wait, that's normal to you. And Sarah's like, that's normal to you. Right. And I think that we unintentionally assume that the people we're talking about are in our situation, just like us with the same background and the same knowledge. And then like, we feel that, well, if we just tell them what to, how to do it right from like either our platform or, you know, uh, from the pulpit that they'll just suddenly start doing it. But I think you're right, Rob, is like, look at the model of Jesus who was making intentional time to reach people who really, I mean, there's no way around this. We're considered the untouchables of his day in many ways, whether it's the Samaritan woman or the parable of the good Samaritan, which he tells, which is like so offensive, right? To his audience. So we have to be, I think we have, we have to be aware that that action, I think, especially in our culture right now does speak louder than words. And I think when you combine both action with words, I think that's when you had a great combination. So, um, I do want to answer, though, Dustin, Dustin's uh, question. 
Did you see it, Rob? Mm-hmm. Yes, are, you, are you cool kind of going there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, it, it touches on, I think, the core essence of our podcast. I know. That's why I'm so excited. <laughs> what was the question? I but, so Dustin asks, how do you young members of the church handle the constant pressures of our culture to have a religious deconstruction leading to many of our current youth being agnostic? I think this is the biggest issue in my community. Who wants to go first? We point, we point them to the Bible project so they can have a complete yes! deconstruction. <laughs> Tim Mackey for the win. <laughs> um, it's a cool if I take a crack at this. Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, well, that is a great question. And um, some people might agree with me. Some might not. That's okay. But I think in a lot of ways, and everyone knows, hopefully who's watching this, or you guys obviously know, I love the church. I'm part of one. I believe in it. That's why I'm still part of one. But I think that we have to own up to um, our church culture, especially in America, just being kind of an unintentionally empty, empty church. I don't think there was a lot of substance um, for a lot of people to what we grew up on. And I think what happens is at some point, obviously I did, you reach a point in your life where you're like, these answers I've been given that I have questions about are just not cutting it. And I can't ignore these questions anymore. I just can't. They're just in, they're in front of my head and they're just in my mind and I just cannot get rid of them. And if I go back to my Sunday school answer of, oh, well, the Bible says it's true. Therefore it must be true. Or, well, you just have to believe or just have to have more faith. I, I just can't function like that. And not everyone's like me. I know that I know plenty of people who have no problem um, just believing. And I honestly, I'm almost envious of that. You know, like, I think that's a beautiful thing. But I think that there was a movement in church, especially like the emergent church movement, right? That tried to kind of be like, hey, we need to re-examine these things. And I think ultimately some of those people kind of did go off the deep end, right? Like just way too far. But I understood what they were doing. They're like, listen, this, there's got to be more to this Bible. And if the message of Jesus is, is what it says it is, that should have like bigger impact in our culture. And so I do wrestle with, you know, how to engage the church now a lot. I think I've definitely changed a lot from kind of yelling at the church all the time and then realizing like, well, that's not getting me anywhere. And people think I'm a big a-hole <laughs> and, and and even though i i think i love them they don't think i love them so i've kind of went from that to like you know what the only way to change the church for me right now is just from the inside out and by loving people well and having conversations about like what does church look like when we're living life together for real and how do i still accept the Sunday morning gathering and all of its maybe showy sides, but, but also have this foundational aspect of like community and reaching people and being physical hands and feet to the poor in my area. I mean, what does James say? True religion is loving the orphan and the widow, right? I mean, that is, that to me is so powerful that we have a mandate as Christ followers to love people who are hard to love and who are in difficult situations. So that's kind of how I handle it. I have a lot of friends who walked away from the church and walked away from God. And um, I'd be lying if I said, I, you know, that I didn't get it. I definitely do get it. I understand you know, the church is full of people who do bad things because we're human. Humans do bad things. And 
I think we've all experienced it in some level. You know, we've all experienced or have seen leaders um, just do weird things or immoral things. But at the end of the day, for me, I really believe that the church is, uh, has the potential to really be like the hope of the world. And I think that Jesus will always use his church. The church has changed. It looks different than what it looks like 30 years ago and 100 years ago. But ultimately, God is still going to work through it. And, and that's, I think, I think he still is, clearly. I mean, I think he's still working. You know, there's definitely a lot of young people that I meet who are passionate. And all I can do, like Rob said, to bring a full circle is point them to the Bible project and say, <laughs> prepare to have your mind blown in the best way possible. Because I will say that Tim Mackey and John and that whole team, they really have um, helped me breathe new life into the Bible and understanding things that, again, not intentional, but just things that I think as a Western culture we've missed that help make the Bible make so much more sense of why these things are in here that maybe we wrestle with. So different discussion, but that's my answer. Yeah, I was going to say, I have like several different thoughts and they're all kind of spinning around in my head. So if I go a little bit off um, and this isn't super <laughs> makes sense, just a warning for you. But uh, I guess I'm thinking like the Bible will always stand up to like critical um, deconstruction, even if you want to say that. Like if you're talking about... Uh, was the phrase he used in there? Uh, religious reconstruction. If you're talking about he just meant like, deconstruction, just so you know. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I thought he meant. Religious deconstruction in that you like you're diving into that and trying to, um, you, you know, deconstruct what you've learned growing up in the church and see what the Bible really has to say. Like, I think it comes back a lot to how the individual approaches that. Um, I don't think questioning scripture or questioning what we've been taught growing up in the church is a bad thing at all, especially if the alternative is to sort of blindly follow what, you know, the religious tropes or whatever that have been taught to us. I think, you know, a personal relationship with Jesus, which is really what we're all after, has to be personal. And we can't replace that with our relationship with a church. Um, you know, so we kind of have to go out if our relationship with Jesus is really just a relationship with church and religion that we've been taught growing up, we have to do that. You know, you have to deconstruct that and come back to where is this personal for me in, in you know, and how can I have this relationship with Jesus, you know, and who is Jesus to me? Um, because if you don't get to that point, then it's never going to be you know, a life-changing thing for you. Um, go ahead, Tim. Can I just mention one thing? And honestly, mm -hmm. I, I agree with you, Jordan. Let me just say that first. I, however, I have slightly shifted one thing that you said personally, mm -hmm. and I, I'm with you that you can't make the church your Jesus. I, I'm with you on that. But I do think it's very easy to do that because the culture we're in kind of funnels you into that situation almost where it's like, well, you know, like we trust that like the pastor is, you know, giving you, you the mean, right, right belief. You mean the church culture we're in, not the secular culture we live in? Yes, the church okay. culture we're in, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I under I agree with you. I just think it's almost easier said than done because it is a very, they're very 
and they are very inter they're very intertwined uh, intertwined they're very interlinked you know they're very they are close together um i don't know i don't know whatever the right word is but it is hard i think for some people to separate like oh if these people are supposed to be especially what tim mackey would say god's representatives you know and like i've been abused by one or someone i know was hurt mm -hmm. by one of this person embezzled i can understand how someone's view of god could be tainted by that because of that situation i'm not saying it's right i'm just saying i understand it yeah no for sure and i think i'm not trying to defend sort of where our church culture has come in this regard because i think largely it is discouraged to sort of you don't know, deeply question your faith and i don't think that that's a bad thing because like I said, I think the Bible scripture and I think Jesus Christ himself can stand up to that. Like I don't, they don't need the church to protect, like the Bible doesn't need the church to protect it from uh, like deep questioning. <laughs> like it can stand yes. up to deep questioning. Yes, um, that's a great way of putting it. And I'm sorry to interrupt you. Just yeah, to no, piggyback okay. off what I want to <laughs> feed off what you're saying. I think that... Um, the church has put up almost like this barrier of like, well, we're telling you how to interpret this book. We're telling you the right way. If you deviate mm -hmm. from this, you're just, you're totally wrong. You know, you, you can't possibly know unless we kind of feed you whatever it is. And I'm not saying every church does that, but I think that there definitely are certain sects in the Christian faith that would push that way more than not. We're like, well, we're telling you it's very clear. This is the way to interpret it. So I, I agree mm -hmm. with what you're saying, Jordan. I hear you on that. Yeah. And interpretation is kind of like a whole other thing. Like, mm. I mean, we did a whole podcast on biblical interpretation. Yes. Go back and listen to that one. But um, <laughs> shameless no, plug. podcast series. <laughs> oh, that's true. We did. It was a whole series. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's just that I think if the church has a fear of its young people deconstructing their faith, I don't think that's a good place to be in. Like, there shouldn't be a fear of that. There should be like an encouragement towards that almost and a guidance through that, yeah. you know, like expect that as young people there, you're go like your the young people in your church, maybe the generation behind you, maybe coming up is going to go through this period of time where they need to sort of deconstruct what you've taught them growing up because they're a different person. You know, they're an adult now they've come, maybe come through college where they were taught who knows what about everything. Um, and so you can't just say, well, you should believe all the things we taught you as in youth group and in, you know, Sunday school, you know, they, they're going to have to determine who Jesus is to them as an individual and what, how they're going to relate to Jesus as an individual. And the church should really be more focused on guiding young people through that process rather than trying to like stop it from happening. Yeah. So Oh, God, Rob. Go Wait. I've, I've talked enough. Um, Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, so a couple, a couple items. Um, I 100% I agree. I, I, think, I think it's the responsibility. So I, I read the, the book uh, Multiply by Francis Chan. I don't know mm -hmm. if you guys have read that one. And it's all about discipleship. And I think for a long time, discipleship in the church wasn't what it should have been or what it needed to be. Um, and I think that's a, an important essence of 
this is an older person who has more experience in life and has gone through some of this questioning and is able to guide younger believers, younger people in the church through some of their questioning and allow that questioning to happen. Because I, th I think that questioning is a, is a great thing where you're digging a foundation. And Jordan, like you said, if you're digging the foundation of scripture, the church doesn't have to be there making sure that it's level. Guess what? It's level and it's sure and it's plumb and it's rock solid because it's the inspired word of God. And God is who he says he is. And we don't have to be there making sure that they're going to get the right thing. But it, it is in our realm of um, responsibilities as older members, and maybe we're we're still in that. Not me. I'm young, Speak baby. I'm a young buck. <laughs> we're we're still in that. Maybe we kind of like relate to the youngers, but we're we also learn from the olders. Well, Rob, oh, do you yeah. see my backwards hat? I am very relevant. My hat is oh, all and backwards. Oh, I have tattoos. Yes, you, your I tattoos. do. <laughs> Um, but we we have this responsibility to, as we're going through questioning, to bring others through that same questioning that we've been through. Um, but one of the things that I've always taken as a, a personal um, challenge to myself is to be to the generation coming behind me what I wish I had growing up. Yes. Um, and that's a very difficult, I'm, I'm going to say that's a very difficult thing to do. And sometimes I fail my own um, desire to fulfill those roles. But I think it's something that as we look to a generation coming behind us, that's something we have to be very aware of and very adamant about being those people that we wish we had. Um, so I guess that's a challenge to, to all of us on the podcast and anyone listening too. Mm. Um, one final thought on this. Um, I think we have to be what? What's so funny? Am I a joke to you, Rob? No. What's so funny is I try. I tried to keep us from going off the rails, and we are so far. You know what? Though I gotta say, okay. this is our first time going live. People are asking questions. I think it's kind of cool. And I've, honestly, I've been looking. I mean, thanks guys for staying with us for this whole time. It's it's very cool. Yeah. But um, I I want to add one last thing to this um i think we have to be honest and realize that if people come away with slightly different interpretations on some things that's okay and i'm not talking about mm -hmm. hey i don't think jesus was the son of god i don't think he really died i'm not talking about like you know core christian foundational principles i'm, I'm talking about things that you know um how like i like yeah or uh, that the earth is you know, 4 billion years old or yeah, universes. Yeah, things like that. Or if the earth is flat or not, you know, no. Um, I'm just kidding. Um, but um, my point is that like, you know, I really have been thinking about this more and more how it's kind of amazing how in one in one sense, the the Bible and like the message of, of the Bible has really stayed consistent, even through some dark times, even through like abuses by the Catholic Church or the Reformation. It's It's still here, right? But it's also been interpreted in a lot of ways very differently in different cultural contexts and in different times of life. I mean, I think about Martin Luther with infant baptism or how maybe, you know, the church was, was passionate about this thing in this time period. So it is interesting how, like, how God maintains his word all the way through, but it's also 
always not so black and white. I think, you know, it's easy to see that we have 3000 different denominations in the Christian faith. Um, so I think it's important that we realize that while there is a core foundational biblical truth that we see how Jesus unifies the Bible, right, as Tim would say, there is, I can understand how people can come away with some other views of different things, <laughs> thinking, okay, I see it this way. Well, I see it this way. I see a duck. I see a rabbit. Okay, you know, I can I can see how, you, how both of you can see the same thing differently and how God still maintains and works through all of them. I mean, I, listen, I don't want to admit it, okay, but I'm going to. You know, I, God works through guys like the Jeff Durbins of the world and the Apologia Radios of the world. I think he does. Like, God is working through those people. I also think, whether you like it or not, that God is working through the Stephen Furtick's of the world. I think that, that <laughs> I really believe that. I think that people have genuinely met Jesus at churches like that, right? Mm -hmm. Now we can debate, you know, if it's healthy, if it's good, we can debate all that. But God is working in very different streams of the Christian faith with probably mm -hmm. some very, probably some probably deep-seated divisions on some probably pretty important stuff. But God is still working. And I think it's important for us to remember that, that when we you get better interaction, I think you just have, I don't know, for me, it's more fun. I, I like real-time conversation, you know, so. But yeah, anyway, this probably we'll won't again. be our last. Yeah, our last live. Yeah, I agree. Now that we figured out how I mean, to do it, <laughs> yeah, we're all cooped up in quarantine. Yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna do probably several more. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, well, I think that's good enough. It's ten twenty at night. I gotta finish yes, my. I gotta finish my McMillions documentary. <laughs> it's a good show. Check yeah, it so out. So far, so good. Well, I guess I'll close this out to all of the people who decided to watch live and who are listening to this after it's been posted on our website and podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you have more questions or feedback for us, we'd love to hear it. And I think we will definitely go Facebook live again for sure. And I appreciate all the input from everyone. So thank you very much and have a great night. Stay safe and love your neighbor. Well, amen. Socialism. <laughs> Thanks for checking out the Coffee Theology in Jesus podcast. You can always drop us a line on Facebook or through our email, podcast at coffeetheologyandjesus.com, as we love to hear from our listeners. Until next time, drink coffee, discuss theology, and love Jesus.